Because no two investors are the same, one size doesn't fit all. There's more to it. At S&P Dow Jones Indices, we offer index strategies for all types of investments. Comprehensive ESG solutions, core retirement strategies, multi-asset diversification, and new ways of thinking about risk management and income. They're all in one place. Express your investment views and give yourself the freedom to go anywhere with S&P Dow Jones Indices. Search Indexology on the web or hashtag Indexology on Twitter and LinkedIn. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends? I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. How does the market go from dismal and dejected on Friday to beyond exuberant on Monday? How do we trigger such an incredible rally? With the Dow surging 669 points, uh, uh, most since 2008, although admittedly off a much higher basis, the S&P roaring 2.7% and the NASDAQ pole vaulting 3.3%. All aboard! Practically out of nowhere. First, and most importantly, last week we left the office thinking that China was going to slap some tariffs on the U.S. exports that would severely weaken the stock market. Yes, not the economy, but the stock market. Maybe even cause the S&P to break down below its 200-day moving average. You laugh, but let me tell you. The Chinese Communist Party has learned an awful lot about the charts from manipulating its own stock market. These guys are geniuses about stock markets. They knew exactly what they were doing. When China announced $3 billion in largely agricultural tariffs, I knew some people thought that that signaled their leaders are afraid of us. No. They took it as a sign that the Chinese were cowering at the possibility of President Trump slapping $60 billion in tariffs on their own goods, double what the administration was talking about not too long ago. No. Initially, there was a sense of relief that China was so compliant. Hey, maybe China's a paper tiger after all. But this weekend, this weekend, the Chinese government let their official press organs know that they're ready to put the hammer to Apple, to Intel, and to Boeing if the president puts in those $60 billion in new tariffs. Apple CEO Tim Cook was over at the People's Republic talking about the benefits of free trade. So any cutback in Chinese sales would be devastating for the estimates, which is what stocks trade on. Intel, that's a double-edged sword. Intel, oh boy. Intel's the PC, the data center, autonomous driving. They got a ton of Chinese business. Boeing, a little more complicated. The stock would get pummeled for certain. But there's so much demand for aircraft uh, that I think others would eagerly step in to replace China. But in other words, you're talking about far more than just wine, pigs, and assorted fruits. You're talking about huge publicly traded companies. If you're the president of the United States and you want to crack down on China, you need to be willing to say, you know what, bring it on. That's exactly what investors were afraid of. We were terrified that Trump would get more aggressive with the Chinese and they would hit us right back. Still could happen. 
So the market, though, breathed a sigh of relief when the White House put good cop Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin on Fox this weekend and talked about the progress in trade talks. Progress? We didn't know there were any trade talks. He's talking progress, saying perhaps the Chinese would show more respect for intellectual property, possibly lower tariffs on U.S. exports. Given that General Motors sold more vehicles in China last year than it did in the United States, hey, we'll take it. Sure, it could be a fig leaf. Or it could be the real deal. What really matters, though, is that it showed us the other side of the trade saber rattling. It made us believe that there's a plan here, plan, a plan beyond just antagonizing the Chinese. And the president may be able to negotiate his way to a good outcome. He's done it before. Plus, the U.S. made a very good deal with the South Koreans over the weekend that's caused prices for our own steel to rise. A total win for an industry that the president supports very aggressively. That's the essential component of this rally. An extremely negative story on Friday becomes a hopeful story on Monday, especially if we dodge the Apple, Intel, and Boeing bullets. Too many traders got caught out of position this weekend. Too many individual investors and portfolio managers. What did they do? They panicked. Need I say what I... Do I have to do it again? Do I have to tell you that panic is not a strategy? But that's not the whole story. We also need to account for, um, for Stormy Daniels. I know, it's ridiculous how I'm even talking about Stormy Daniels, right? I mean, isn't mad money supposed to be about the stock market? Well, all last week, the Bears, the Bears, were talking about how 60 Minutes has a tape of the president with Stormy Daniels. A presidential sex tape. Not good for the stock market. But when the piece ran, there was no tape. It's kind of just a really embarrassing story, right? Maybe one of the president's lawyers made an in-kind campaign contribution that wasn't exactly kosher. Holy cow, my head was spinning from that stuff. The point is, though, this isn't the kind of thing that's going to cause panic and chaos in the White House. It may have a political impact, but it doesn't impact the market. The Bears needed a tape. They didn't get one. The interview, though, did keep us watching the Duke-Kansas game, which had a very surprising finish. Maybe that was the real shocker. So we dodged not one, but two bullets. Just as important, we did so at a moment when the averages were like a coiled spring, ready to jump higher. As many people thought, every chart looks bad, and we're to 200 day, and all that nonsense I had to hear all weekend. The stock market was incredibly oversold. How oversold? Let me put this in context. Back in February, when things were really falling apart, we got the minus 10 on the oscillator that I follow. One of the most negative readings I've ever seen. You always buy at minus 10 unless there's some huge systemic risk like we had during the financial crisis. This time, we got a reading of minus 6. And while that's not a minus 10, anything below minus uh, 5 usually means you have to cover your short positions at least. I think this rally is very much about traders doing precisely that. Remember that almost all rallies begin with short covering. The final ingredient that sent this market soaring into the stratosphere, the worst acting stocks were able to stabilize. Now, the worst acting stock of the worst acting stocks that I've seen in ages is Facebook. Facebook. I mean, this thing, this was like five, five pianos landing on you when you're walking down the street. The privacy issue caused the stock to fall at one point today to levels hit by the stock of Wells Fargo after its cross-selling scandal and targeted after its data breach. Target eventually came back. Wells is uh, yet to recover. 
Facebook, the stock only closed in the green after testing those Wells target levels of decline. Do you know its stock is now factoring in almost no growth? I say that because it trades at a discount to the average stock in the S&P 500 next year's earnings, and nearly every stock that sells for below average multiples has little or no growth. Yet last year, Facebook grew by more than 40%. Sure, there will be people who defriend the social media titan. But advertisers still love it because it's a good return on investment. Washington has set its fangs into Facebook. Couldn't resist. And the stock took a big dive when something that was reported already, an FTC investigation, was reported again. Hey, is that not the classic oversold thing when we already know something's happening and still goes down eight when it's reported again? Now, look, I love the apologies from those two. But if this rally is going to continue, Facebook needs to bring in an outside investigator whom the feds trust to determine what went wrong and tell them what they need to change. Doing that would send the stock up a quick 10 bucks. That reverberate through the rest of the market. Why don't they just make the 10 bucks? So that's how you get a stunning rally like the one we had today. Bottom line, my advice here is to go over your portfolio. If you own a stock that didn't go up today, you got a real problem on your hands. If your stocks did go up, maybe let them run a bit, but don't get greedy. We're not out of the woods yet, and it's very important that the Chinese decide to give Apple, Intel, and Boeing a pass on their tariff hit list. Even so, things look a heck of a lot better than they did a few days ago, and the short covering, even up here, is probably not over. Let's go to Ryan in Florida. Ryan! Hi, Jim. How are you? Ryan, I'm very good. How about you? Uh, I'm good. I'm good. Uh, I'm wondering about Activision Blizzard. It was one of my first investments and has dropped quite a bit recently amid competition from the game Fortnite. Is now a good time to buy again? I don't know. I mean, you know, we trimmed some for, uh, I told club members in our big club call today at 1130. We take a little profits here. Why? Because it was so big and because I'm not crazy about the market. I mean, yeah, I'm crazy about today, but today already happened. John in Pennsylvania. John. Hey, Jim. Long time, first time. All right. I want to thank you, first of all, for all the guidance and, and perspective you give us. I'm calling about uh, Dow DuPont. The recent tariff drama seems to have taken the stock price of Dow to the woodshed, yeah. as it is down over 15% from its recent high. I know. With Dow due to report next month, their earnings, I'm wondering, should I pounce on this 15% off sale and add to my existing yes. position now? Yes. Now, here's I the problem. Just so you know, here's the problem. And I said this to, to club members. This is the deal. Crop protection is a big business for Dow DuPont. They do a lot of business in Brazil. Brazil's got steel problems, dumping steel in our country. If the Brazilians decide to retaliate, what they will do is kick out Dow DuPont. That's what people think. I think Dow DuPont is an inexpensive stock. It is down 15 points. I'm not drawing a line in the sand, but I am saying that Ed Breen's going to work wonders. So you take it down three from here, and then maybe you get 20. I think that's right. That's an opening bid. Laurel in New York. Laurel. Mr. Kramer, thanks for taking my call. Of course. I'm, in, I'm interested in your opinion on Reality Holdings, R-L-G-Y, a company of integrated residential real estate services. I purchased the stock at the IPO in 2012 in the low 30s, and I purchased another big chunk last year in okay. the low 20s. Do you think this stock is volatile? 
or do you think there's an opportunity for long-term upside? Uh, I think there are only a very few national players, but at the same time, I see real estate slowing in the country, and not by anything that's big, but I think enough to make it so that it's going to be difficult to be able to repeat big numbers. I think that's fair to say. Uh, I like a home, I like home builders better than I like the real estate agents. All right. Look, we're not out of the woods yet. I mean, use this time to review your portfolio. Please don't get greedy. Oh, man, money tonight. Can Wendy satisfy Wall Street's hunger for growth, or could the company get cooked? I'm sitting down with the CEO to find out if there's an opportunity to take a bite. Then, is the newfound hate for natural gas here to stay? I'm going to tell you if it's only natural. And trade tensions may have eased, but I'm eyeing the next worry that you're going to have to have on your radar screen. So stick with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. We'll explain that in a second. Right, how do you know when a turnaround story still has legs? Consider the case of Wendy's, the world's third largest quick service burger chain, with a stock that's given you some phenomenal gains over the last five years, and we've been behind it. Wendy's has been one of the best performers in the restaurant space, thanks in part to the company's radical transformation, some under the watchful eye, by the way, of Nelson Peltz, the all-star activist investor. But Peltz began reducing his stake in the company last year, although he's still got a big one, and while his triumph fund remains the largest shareholder, it seems as though the company has already implemented most of his cost-cutting expansion strategies. So if the turnaround phase may be starting to taper off, what's the next leg of growth? Let's take a closer look with Todd Penninger. He's the CEO of Wendy's Company. You get a better sense of how his business is doing and where it might be headed. I think you got a little heads up on the music about where my questioning is going. Mr. Penninger, welcome back to Mad Money. Jim, Good to, to see you, Todd. Thank doing? you. All right, so we're thinking about next leg, and I'm looking at some of your snarky social media where McDonald's says that the majority of the stores may be using uh, fresh beef. You came, uh, you came right back, and I'm listening to some music that apparently is doing quite well. Yeah, no, on uh, Friday we dropped a little uh, mixtape. It was all about fresh. Um, peaked on the weekend on, uh, on iTunes at number three on the hip-hop charts, if you can believe it. <laughs> But it's really about telling our food story, that right. uh, we're fresh, never frozen. And, uh, and we called out a few of the competitors along the way. But we want to really make sure that people understand that, uh, that we are fresh and we're a little bit different. Right. And social media would indicate that, too. Now, let me ask you something. You have had a phenomenal run. And when I say that, the, num- the same store sales growth, it's been so great for so long. Todd, I wonder, I mean, how do you maintain it? I mean, yes. honestly, it's tough. No, we're proud. We've got 20 straight quarters, the same restaurant sales growth. Right, and, right. Uh, and, and the business just continues to deliver quarter over quarter. Uh, and the opportunity is really uh, to, to leverage a couple of things. Really okay. talk about our fresh messaging, right? Fresh is still so on trend, and it's been for the last 50 years that our brand has been in right. existence. It's really talking about, um, you know, the next generation of our designs. How do we make sure we got food forward to showcase right. all of that? And then how do we connect to that next generation of consumer, right? You heard a little bit of it, uh, you know, with that mixtape. But, you know, we got two and a half million Twitter followers where we really get to talk about our differences right. and how we stand apart from, uh, from the competition. And you want to explain to people how fresh is what people want 
even more than necessarily natural or organic. No, at the end of the day, it is about fresh, Jim. And, uh, you know, we've been serving fresh, never frozen uh, North American hamburgers um, on all of our hamburgers since uh, day one in 1969. But still to this day, we're bringing in whole heads of lettuce, right? right. And spinning right. and chopping and, you know, chopping our tomatoes. And our menu is all about full customization, made to order. Um, a lot of consumers don't realize that today. So we've been elevating the awareness of fresh beef. Um, we've been elevating the awareness of a full customization by having food forward in our new restaurant right. design and really leveraging technology to complement it. You have to uh, coined something, and I want to go over the technology in a second. Speed, convenience, and affordability will make quick service always be popular. The speed seems to be, at this level, technology. Uh, technology will play a big role, right? right. Speed, convenience, affordability, uh, basic human needs. And that's yeah. why QSR continues to steal more and more of the, uh, the, the restaurant-based meals. Uh, it's the reason why folks still get out of their home to come out to the restaurants. Technology can complement it all. If you think about customer self-order kiosks, you think about mobile order, mobile pay, you know, those are things that actually can actually work past the slowest point in uh, the whole process, yes. taking the order. Yes. Right? And folks feel like they have a better customer experience. You get more orders to the kitchen, but it complements our operating model, right? We've been doing full customization mm -hmm. made to order from day one. Anyone can take an order faster. The key is, can you actually get that order out the door accurate and fast? Uh, two things that you highlight that I want people to understand. Balanced high-low calendar and buy and flip. These come up repeatedly in the conference calls. I need you to explain to people what they mean. Yeah, so balanced high-low is making sure that we have an always-on message on both of our premium or core. So we're right. talking about fresh beef all the time. We're bringing limited-time offers to life on a regular basis. But we also have a value message going okay. full-time. And those are things like, uh, you know, our four-for-four, four, which we just expanded eight items for $4, um, uh, four items for... Or it's eight. a big hit. It, for it's four. a big hit, but we also do disruptive things like the dollar double stack, really to drive folks into the restaurant to, to make sure that once they're there, we can help them trade up across the menu. And the buy and flip? Interesting. So, so buy and flip is really about how do we build a stronger system. So if you think about our system over the last four years, about 40% of our restaurants are in the hands of, of new operators, some existing, some new to the system. And why is that so important? Well, we've got about 30 uh, new franchisees, all new to the system, that we brought in over the last four years. We also got 30 new franchisees that are next generation. You just tell people a franchisee doesn't necessarily have one store. They don't necessarily have one. On average, they have 17 restaurants right, in our right. system. But what is really important is we've got franchisees that are focused on our business for the long run. They're thinking about this business in the next 15 or 20 year increments. They're investing in new restaurants. They're investing in re-imaging. They're investing in technology. And that's important to really drive the transformation of the Wendy's brand. Got it. Now. Um, the long-term plan is to have uh, 7,250 stores. Uh, Credit Suisse said, hold it, your plan had been to have 7,500. You're, you're slowing down your, your uh, growth. I, I just need to get an answer if that's really the case. No, not really. It's just a, a slippage of about a year. So we're still going to get to 7,500 restaurants by 2021. So we had a target and a goal for 2020. Mm -hmm. So in North America, we did slow a little bit. Um, a lot of that was just the timing of the pipeline. We got a strong incentive out there. Um, and we're asking our franchisees to do a lot, invest in re-imaging new bills and technology. So they have to pace and sequence that out, Jim. Okay, so uh, it was, they, Credit Suisse pointed out 
uh, that there's a lot of competition in the segment, uh, that there's an oversupply and rising labor costs. Are those all playing a role? They're all playing a role, but what you're seeing is the restaurants with scale are growing, right? Because right. when you have scale, you can invest in technology. Uh, you can invest in things from a consumer-facing technology in the front of the house. Mm -hmm. You can invest in automation in the back of the house. Um, you can do things with industrial engineers to figure out how do you optimize your labor guide along the way to, uh, to really mitigate some of those inflationary impacts. Those are important things to help differentiate because what we know is you can't pass along to the consumer um, you know, the wage inflation no. because the gap between food at home and food away from home just gets too wide. So you've got to find efficiencies to offset those pressures. Millennials love social media, despite what we all Facebook actually was up today. And you know what else they like? They like uh, delivery. Whether you like it or not, they like to see. I like it there because yeah. when I go to my one in Short Hills, it's so piping hot, it's so great. I don't know who would possibly take out, but they want takeout. They do want takeout, and when you think about you know of convenience and how does convenience get redefined, a lot of that is how do you bring it to them and where they're at. We've got a great partnership with DoorDash. We've got about 20% of our restaurants now being serviced by delivery. Number one, number two selling items, believe it or not, are French fries and Frosties. So two <laughs> things that you would say, do they really <laughs> do deliver they well? But we're still getting four and a half out of five stars and our highest overall satisfaction, restaurant, dine-in, restaurant, uh, uh, drive-through or delivered is delivered. So we get the most credit for a delivery order Holy right cow, now. That is high. I can tell you from my business, that's highly unusual. That's Todd Penagore. He's the CEO of Wendy's Company. I think they have a lot in the hopper, a lot ahead. Stick with Kramer. Thanks, Jim. Thank you. Pleasure. when this whole market seemed hostage to Washington from the tariff news, the West Wing personnel shakeup, the news that our government is quietly in negotiation with, with Chinese over uh, trade, well, it meant that we could roar higher today. In other words, it may be safe to start thinking in terms of secular trends again and individual businesses again, not just in terms of federal policy, although I'm sure they will, it will intervene soon enough. With that in mind, we need to talk about a group that's been getting annihilated lately. I'm talking about the new hate on natural gas. Well, crude oil has rebounded back to the mid-60s and seems to be holding its own. Natural gas is another story. Not long ago, everybody was touting this stuff as the cleaner, safer bridge fuel to a clean energy future. But lately, there's been a major backlash against nat gas, gas from state and local regulators. It doesn't sound like cleaner anymore. And their negative attitude appears to have spread to investors who've turned on this group en masse. And look, I'm not just talking about naturally, natural gas the commodity, although that's been a real dog. I'm talking about the entire complex, anything that touches natural gas, the producers, the transporters, the storage providers, the exporters, even utilities that use it to produce electricity, and the makers of the turbines that were supposed to profit from this renaissance. So why the heck is natural gas going out of style in the Wall Street fashion show, and what do you need to know in order to protect your portfolio? Let's start with the commodity itself, because it shapes the whole narrative. Just like oil, natural gas peaked in 2014, plummeting until prices found a bottom a little over two years ago. Then both fossil fuels began to recover. However, unlike oil, where the recovery has continued, natural gas stalled out last year. And after a weird spike this January, nat gas seems to have given up the ghost. 
Over the past 12 months, prices are down more than 15%, and they've plunged nearly 30% from their highs in late January. Now, what makes the recent action all the more stunning is that this winter should have been the perfect setup for natural gas. Extreme weather increases demand for all kinds of energy, and people actually use gas to heat their homes in this country. It's the biggest uh, percentage use. It's the biggest uh, percentage of all heating mechanisms in the country. So you'd expect a winter with tons of widespread cold weather, multiple bomb cyclones, nor'easters galore, including another one out of nowhere just last week, would produce a real sustained rally in natural gas, maybe perhaps the best in years. Stream on. And while the commodity roared in January, it started getting crushed a little less than two months ago. Since then, it just keeps bouncing on the bottom. If you have any exposure to this stuff, well, you know what? That should scare you. Because if a brutal winter can't deliver sustained natural gas rally, can anything? How does this cleaner, safer bridge fuel find itself in such a difficult position? Last week, the Wall Street, uh, Wall Street Journal published a terrific piece by Aaron Aylworth. It was entitled, Natural Gas Under Assault in Some States After Brief Rain at the Top. You know what? She painted a pretty grim picture. After years of steady growth where natural gas uh, kept taking market share before finally eclipsing coal as the number one fuel, uh, energy source in 2016, Elworth documents how this fuel has quickly come under fire by regulators at the state level. Yet many states are blocking new natural gas plants. For example, Arizona just put a nine-month moratorium on building large new uh, gas-powered uh, plants. Massachusetts legislature, considering it built to mandate a 3% annual increase in renewables. No room there for natural gas plants. But California's the real battleground. See, California has adopted some very aggressive environmental goals. The state wants to get 50%, 5-0, of their energy from renewables by 2030. And it's up from 30% right now. And if they were to hit that target, that means phasing out a lot of gas-fired facilities. In fact, Aylworth quotes the head of the state's Energy Commission saying, quote, at some point soon we'll be permitting the last gas plants in California. On top of that, they're also shutting down older facilities that are less efficient. Till earlier this year, the regulators directed the state's largest power producer, PG&E, to start taking bids for renewable energy facilities in order to replace three of their older natural gas plants. This was not supposed to happen. Of course, it's not true everywhere. States like Ohio and Pennsylvania, two big natural gas producers, continue to embrace nat gas plants. But in general, I think the newfound hatred for all fossil fuels is getting to be a real concern here. It calls into question one of the most powerful components of the bull thesis, that natural gas was going to keep taking share within the power generation market. If that thesis changes to natural gas is going to stay at about a third of the power generation space, it may even lose ground in renewables. Well, let me tell you, it's going to be a lot harder to feel good about this group. If the natural gas movement has peaked here, then the decline in these stocks is verified. I've got to tell you, natural gas producers have become victims of their own success, just like Rusty Brazil said would happen to our expert. In recent years, domestic nat gas production has continued to surge. We just have so much of this stuff in America, and it's so darn cheap to get it out of the ground. But it's not just the U.S. anymore. Even places like Asia-Pacific region, which we normally don't associate with natural, natural gas production, have had some significant growth lately. According to the Energy Information Administration, the U.S. is going to produce 81.7 billion cubic feet of natural gas per day in 2018. I'll from 73.6 billion per day last year, which was already a huge number. But get this. This year, we're going to see the largest absolute increase in that gas production in nearly a century, perhaps the largest of all time. 
Man, we already have a nat gas glut. Put it all together and you can understand why whole swaths of this market have become uninvestable. The natural gas producers are stuck in a house of pain. Chesapeake, Southwestern, Devon Energy, Range Resources, their stocks have been obliterated. Even the best performers in the group like Anadarko, Capital Oil, and Gas lagging behind the averages by a mile. This is a lesson we had to learn the hard way with my charitable trust. I talk a lot about the good ones. Well, wait a second. We own some Apache, APA, and that stock has been punished as we realize that the company's recent huge fine in the Permian contains much more natural gas than oil. Ouch. Time to go. Take the loss. First loss. Best loss. Even the big integrated oil producers like Exxon and Chevron aren't safe. These companies are gigantic producers of natural gas, so the weakness hurts them too. And while you might expect the pipeline plays to benefit because many of them make their money off the volume they transport, not the actual price of the commodity, the group has been horrendous of late. I mean really bad. The problem? Natural gas may be reaching levels of such extreme oversupply that it's cheaper for downstream companies to simply burn off their excess production rather than going through the hassle of shipping and storing it somewhere. The master limited partnerships have been especially hard hit after the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission put the kibosh on the growth of the industry with an unfavorable, shockingly unfavorable ruling that no one was looking for. Boy, everyone was caught out of position on that. I almost feel bad about bringing this up, but natural gas is yet another problem area for General Electric. Um, their flagship gas turbine business, maybe they should call it turbine, maybe they'll bring them better luck, has been under tremendous pressure. If, it, if states keep blocking new gas-fired plants, it's going to stay under pressure. Terrible news for the company. They completely misread this market. The one potential bright spot here, I think the liquefied natural gas exporters are intriguing. As America overproduces natural gas and wants less of it, they may create an opportunity for companies like Chenier Energy, Tellurian, that are all about turning that gas into liquid so it can be shipped overseas. Tellurian stock, though, is down 30%. You got my blessing to speculate on it. But it'll be years before their first LNG facility becomes operational. And you know what? I think that Chenier, more established player, it's held up better, so maybe that works. Bottom line. I think the new hate on natural gas is here to stay. Don't try to bet on this group. Don't speculate on it. It's just too risky. In a world where everyone loves renewable energy and the younger generation absolutely despises fossil fuels, including the younger generation of portfolio managers, I know it's tough to take losses. We had to do it for my charitable trust. But these stocks may not come back. Mike in Minnesota. Mike. Hey, Jim, booyah from the home of the Minnesota Wild, the best hockey team in the Northern Hemisphere. Well, I was with some Minnesotans this weekend, man. That's a brave group of people who continue to live in sub-zero temperature. What's up? Hey, I was wondering what your take is on with the Trump ordeal that's going on. What's your take on Conical Phillips? You know, uh, better than most in a really bad group. I certainly wish we had bought that rather than Apache. I mean, holy cow, are we, you know what? Just like Jamie Dimon once said about the whale, hey, we were both, well, let's just say we were stupid and dumb. Let's go to Clark in California, please, Clark. Hello, Professor Kramer. Ooh, I like to have tenure. What's going on? (laughs) Hey, thanks for lending us all your expertise to us regular folk. We really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Hey, uh, Jim, uh, based on uh, Action Alerts Plus recommendations, I bought Enbridge, a symbol ENB, at just under $41 last May when oil prices were in the low 50s. 
I know it's not a pure oil play, but now that oil's in the mid-60s, it's hard to understand why Enbridge is down so much. It's down 25% since the start of the year. Yeah, we got to have Al Monaco back. I mean, you know, look, this group is so hated, and there's lots of new rules that have come out that are very negative for them. Stock yields 7%. We want to find out from Al. I have to believe that they have the coverage for that. But, you know, every one of these is horrible. I don't want to mince words. All right, there's hate toward that gas, and I don't think it's going anywhere. I would steer clear of this group, and if it bounces, maybe anything, you know, anything can bounce. That's when you can sell, 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 sell. Right, much more man money ahead. Uh, don't let today's rally make you complacent. I'm pointing out the new worry that you should have when your radar squeak. Then, with another rate hike in the books, what does one of the largest payroll operators have to say about the current economic environment? I'm going one-on-one with the CEO of Paychex to find out. And all your calls rapid-fire tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stick with Kramer. After a terrific day, I want to use this moment of jubilation to address a new worry that's been floating around lately. I'm talking about the overwhelming proliferation of exchange-traded funds and the concern that intensive ETFs sell orders could easily cascade into, yes, I keep hearing this word, so I'm going to use it, a crash. The theory, concentrated ETF selling can overwhelm the actual equities within an ETF, and the market will therefore have to come tumbling down. The truth is, we actually saw something like this happen in the Great Recession. Even though the SEC put through rules against shorting 700 bank stocks in September 2008, the S&P financial ETF, the XLF, fell from $11 down to $5 by early March when the market bottomed. The banks deserved to get crushed at the time, but much of the weakness came from traders who were shorting the bank's ETFs because it was such a layup. The market bottomed when Ben Bernanke, the Fed chairman at the time, went on 60 Minutes and said he wouldn't let any more banks fail. We now remember that moment as a great buying opportunity, which brings me to my next point. The next time that stocks get crushed by ETF pressure and we have no systemic risk, you know what's likely to happen? Not a crash, but buyers swooping in because there's nothing fundamentally wrong with the economy or the stocks themselves. Consider the big decline in February. At the time, we figured everything was going down because treasuries were about to take out 3%. That's the tenure. Of course, they didn't. More important, a few days into the route, we saw that a lot of the selling came from the VIX pit. Far too many traders were using these VIX instruments to bet that the market would remain placid. So when things stopped being calm, they got crushed. That's why the real risk came from the long S&P short VIX futures trade that had to be unwound. Billions and billions of dollars worth of stock had to be sold. The damage the S&P plunged from 2,873 all the way down to 2,578. We've been living with that ever since. However, once we recognized that the underpinnings of the market had been compromised by that trade, the S&P quickly bounced to 2,779. Chart watchers will tell you that the failure to take out the new, the, those highs uh, from that run has indeed doomed this market. I get that even after a day like today. It's hard to make money when the prevailing sentiment is that everyone's going, going to get crushed in the end. But then again, think of this morning. If you bought stocks at the close on Friday when everyone was freaking out, and then you even sold them today at the high. At the end of the day, well, you made a fortune. As I mentioned earlier, this market got oversold, and then we bounced once we realized that the White House is negotiating with the Chinese. In short, being nimble when stocks get oversold can be a terrific way to make money. You have to be willing to go where others fear to tread. As not a single technician I followed told you to buy the bell on Friday, they were panicked, too, in a lot. Well, not all of them. 
What really matters, though, is that as long as there's no systemic risk, okay, any kind of monster pullback related to ETF selling is going to create buying opportunities that people are going to take advantage of. Finally, while we're on the subject of ETFs, we need to address the issue of Facebook. There are 10 exchange-traded funds that include Facebook along with the other members of FANG. So if you think Facebook will still go lower after this, what I thought was a bottom today, you need to decide if you can use that weakness to buy Netflix and Amazon, which, by the way, were kept down initially by the, this FANG phenomena. I say, yes, you can. Can Facebook pull down the whole group? Oh, anything's possible, at least over the short term. If they don't get that internal investigation coming, something they have nothing to fear from if they are telling the truth. What matters, though, is the rest of FANG has great fundamentals. It will be a buying opportunity. If you want to worry about something, I'd say fret about trade wars or real wars, not ETF selling. The truth is that while ETFs can cause a landslide of selling, like they did in February and on Thursday and Friday, without systemic risk, it's a reason to buy stocks, not bail on them. Man, money's back after the break. It is time. It's time for the Labor Clippers. We're about to go around. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Skate daddy. Time for the lightning round. Joseph in New York. Joseph. Jimmy, how you doing? Booyah. All right, Booyah, back. Question. I, I made a mistake a few a few months ago, almost like pin the tail on the donkey, and hit JBT and bought the stock. Is it worth keeping? I like it. Remember, we like well-built. We like that business. We looked at these guys and thought they were pretty darn good. Hey, that's a mistake that worked in your favor. Let's go to Brian in Texas. Brian. Jim, how are you? I am good. How about you? Good, Jim. Your Phillies are going in the right direction. I'm a little concerned about my Texas Rangers, but maybe you could ease my fears and tell me you can make me some mad money in Walmart. I think Walmart fell too much on the strength of that, on the weakness, I should say, of the e-commerce slowing down a bit, and I think it's okay for a buy. Should go back to the mid '90s. Let's go to John in Ohio. John. Hey, boy, Jim. How you doing, buddy? I am okay. How are you? Good, good. I want your uh, prediction or your input on uh, AT&T. I think AT&T wins the lawsuit. It yields 5.7%. Therefore, I think it is a buy. Cameron, Illinois. Cameron. Hey, big booyah to you, Jim. From out here in Illinois. Thanks for taking my call. Of course. Hey, I'll keep this short and sweet. Uh, Century Aluminum for the long haul. Are you with me? Um, with you for Alcoa for the long haul. I think that's a better situation. Let's go to Christian in North Carolina. Christian! Hey, Kramer. I have a question about just wind energy. Talking about pattern energy, P-E-G-I. P-E-G-I. All right, well, look, I'm going to have to come back on that one. Um, that's it. You know, I don't know that particular one. I could make a broader strategy call of saying, please stay away. But that's not fair to those guys. Yielding 9%. I got to find out if that 9% is real. I mean, it can be can maintained. Let's go to Paul in California. Paul. Jim Kramer, you're awesome. And a booyah for you. Thank you. I, I know you mentioned the stock before, so I got in a few weeks ago. Uh, wanted to know if I should uh, put a couple more berries in Blackberry. I think E-B. Blackberry, I've got to tell you, it's got great intellectual property. It's got great growth. And John Chen is for real. And nice to see you. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade.
On such a fabulous day for the market. Best day since 2008, by the way. Uh, you'd expect when a company reports a better than expected quarter, its stock should go higher, right? I mean, that's what happened with Red Hat after the close. But look at Paychex, the nation's second largest payroll processor with a sideline in human capital management services. This morning, Paychex delivered some robust numbers. Inline earnings with higher than expected revenue up 9% year over year. Even better, the company raised its full year guidance pretty dramatically. Initially, the stock popped about 4% on the headline news, trading up to $63.50 right before the opening. But then management started t- taking analyst questions on the conference call, and the stock got slammed, giving up all the gains, ultimately closing down 51 cents on the biggest day of the year, a biggest day of tenures. What the heck happened here? In all honesty, I didn't see anything alarming on that call. This was a consistent quarter from a company that thrives in exactly this kind of environment where we have strong job growth and rising interest rates. So did the market make a mistake or is there something I'm missing? Let's check in with Marty Musi. He's the CEO of Paychex. Learn more about the quarter and get some insight into the state of the economy. Marty, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Jim. Good to be here. Marty, is it just not enough to be able to do 9% and have the usual 1% to 2% growth? Are these analysts looking for a breakout in growth because there's a huge number of new, small, medium-sized businesses that are supposed to be starting? Well, Jim, I think what happened, you know, this third quarter, because of tax reform, we had some one-time items on the expense side. We had some one-time items on positive from the tax perspective. And I think there was probably some confusion in the quarter. We also said that we were going to invest some of, less than half of the tax reform benefit to us um, over the next year or so to generate more revenue. And I think maybe the models are being adjusted or something. I'm, I'm not sure what happened. It was a solid quarter for us. Well, do you think it's maybe you gave that one example of how much funds you had for the for available for Fed's funds rate? And you did three point nine billion in the May quarter and did four point three billion this one. Maybe people expected, you know, I'm sorry, it was down. It was down a little bit from last year. I mean, do you think that that's that people were bothered by that? Well, you know, I don't think so. I mean, interest rates are rising. Uh, we're up thirty seven percent on interest on our client funds this quarter. Uh, we're heading, you know, toward, you know, probably uh, 60 some million dollars worth of interest up from the 45 range just a, two years ago. Uh, I think that's all positive. Uh, earn, you know, our revenue growth top line helped by an acquisition we did uh, in the first quarter at the end of the first quarter. We're still up at the highest we've been in probably six quarters from a top line growth perspective. So and a great dividend yield. So we're feeling really strong about the results. We'll just have to see what happens in the market. Marty, what is the growth in this country of small to medium-sized businesses right now? Are they opening more than ever, or or are you surprised that they're not? Well, no, I think we're back to a kind of a steady state of new business formation. I think that's a very good thing. I think uh, job growth in small businesses is right there, kind of where it was back in our base year of 2004 for our index. We're seeing job growth not increasing as much, but it's steady and and it's very sustainable. And we're seeing wage growth, as you know, around 2.7 percent. You know, it's come down a little from the almost three we saw, but uh, but it's still a 2.7 percent wage increase. Those two things are very positive for us. That's for sure. How about wage inflation? You concerned? I mean, should we be concerned as a country? I don't think so. I think, you know, you're seeing minimum wage increases and you're you're seeing some of a scarcity of resource. Uh, and I think that's pushing the wages up close to three percent. I think if we can stay in that three percent range, uh, I think that's a good thing. I mean, that's going to get consumers to feel better about saving and buying more. And that's just going to spur more small business growth uh, and growth because of the growth in demand for services. 
I think that's a very positive thing. Can you put in perspective, Marty, the difference between a uh, paychecks and, say, a workday? I mean, workday is growing at 30 percent. Uh, they're a cloud-based human capital management company. Are, are these just apples to oranges? Well, I think so. You know, Workday has really got a much larger client base, uh, much larger clients in their base. They're, they're really in that 5,000, 10,000 and more employees per business. And I think we're seeing a, the job growth is a little stronger in those businesses. And, uh, and, though, and they're also outsourcing a little bit faster probably right now. Uh, and so they're very, very different businesses. I do think what you're seeing for us is that uh, small business growth is continuing. And with the level of regulations and compliance requirements, you're going to see continued growth for us. Minimum wage increases, Family Leave Act, you know, health care changes. That's driving small businesses to outsource. Now, I, I think that uh, the investment, I think, is great because you want to grow. But you've been a tremendous returner of capital. Will that continue? Yeah, it, it will. Uh, you know, we've got a great dividend yield, the highest in the industry by far. And even though we said our margins, uh, we're going, our operating margins, we're going to decrease a little bit as we did these investments. When you look at the bottom line, we're still growing, expecting next year to grow high single digits, if not double digit earnings growth. And we're giving a great dividend yield, uh, the best in the industry. So, uh, yeah, I think it's going to continue. And we're excited about taking some of these dollars opportunistically, investing them in additional product enhancements, accelerating those, driving more market demand in a, in a digital environment. And I think this is going to be very good for our top-line revenue growth in, in, a, in a few years to come. I couldn't agree with you more. I think that the analysts were way too downbeat. To me, the story was, the pre-market story was the right one. The, the questions didn't illuminate anything. I want to thank Marty Musi's president and CEO of Paychex, PAYX. Look, I'm sticking by my rec uh, recommendation. It's just too good a story to leave. Stick with Kramer. Cloud King Red Hat soaring after a great quarter. Tonight, on an all-new American Greed, an ex-serviceman fakes a debilitating injury and lives large on hundreds of thousands in government benefits. He even scores a Purple Heart. It's a stolen valor scam, and it's all caught on tape. Don't miss it. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow. CNBC's Workforce Executive Council is a premier group of C-suite human resources executives from leading companies across the country. It offers a members-only portal and chat, plus exclusive industry content, with access to breaking news calls and digital networking experiences. The network and resources HR leaders need now. Apply to the Workforce Executive Council at cnbccouncils.com slash WEC.